0: Well, the wedding is nearly here. Are you ready? The end is nigh this morning in more ways than one. We're coming to the end of our long-running series on the book of Revelation. And this morning we get the climax of the book, the high spot of history, the apex of the ages, the wedding of the Lamb. Now, there have been some tough passages that we've seen over the past few weeks and months. There have been some downright horrific passages. There have been some quite bizarre passages. But we've made it through (coughs) to the end. And this morning we see what happens to God's people after Jesus returns and judgment day has happened. This is about how God's people will spend eternity. And the setting is a wedding. Now getting ready for a wedding is a big deal. Uh, No doubt the freers are experiencing a bit of that at the moment. Uh, their daughter Katie's getting uh, married in July. Not to worry Stuart too much, but you know, there's the cake, there's the dress, there's the venue, there's the flowers, there's the makeup, there's the speeches, there's the food, there's the guest list, there's the invitation. The list is almost endless, sorry, not, again, not to scare you in any way. But this wedding, though, is even bigger. This is a wedding on a cosmic scale. The guest list runs to millions. And the wedding banquet is the greatest in history. And the host is God himself. The names of the invitations that have gone out, the Lamb and the New Jerusalem. <laughs> yes, that's right, if Revelation couldn't get any weirder. On the surface of it, what we have here is a sheep that's getting married to a city. And the city is adorned as a bride. That's the picture that we have. We're so used to it, aren't we? We don't really think about how this works. But what we're seeing in reality is Christ is marrying his bride, the church. We see this imagery of our relationship with Christ like a marriage throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself spoke of himself as the bridegroom. Really what we experience now is a sort of binding engagement that we have to Christ. One that's unbreakable But the wedding itself is still to come. And we see it here in the book of Revelation. So firstly what we see is a fairly simple explanation heard. That's really verses 1 to 8. We see there a new heaven and a new earth. A new beginning. A fresh start. After the judgment that we saw at the end of chapter 19. And the horrific end for those who did not accept the Lord Jesus. We now see the glorious end of those who did. And for once in Revelation, well, they'll just do it a few times, doesn't it, as we go through, the explanation is fairly clear, apart from the sea bit. We'll come to that in a minute. But the new earth is inhabited by God's people and by God himself. So Revelation 21, verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What we're looking forward to is a time when we will dwell with God together on the new earth. All those promises of scripture that God will be our God and that we'll live with him will finally come to fulfilment. We speak often as heaven as Christians, don't we? But our final destination as believers is not heaven. Heaven is a wonderful waiting room for this. Our final destination is the new earth, when heaven and earth come together, so to speak. When 80 singer Belinda Carlyle will finally get her way, and heaven really will be a place on earth. There we will dwell with God in our new resurrection bodies for eternity. But we're told that there will be some things missing in this new world, however. Firstly, there'll be no sea. Now, I know some people get really upset about this, because people really love the seaside, don't they? We don't really know whether it's a literal picture there or whether it's trying to get a different idea across. Because in Revelation, the sea is consistently an evil picture. It's where Babylon grew rich. It's where the evil beast comes up out of. In the previous chapter, it was where people died and had to be given up for judgment. And earlier on in the book, it's sort of a chaotic tempest that must be stilled before God. Well, now here at the end... It's not just still, it's gone. The idea of chaos, the idea of uh, a death and destruction that really the Israelites more saw it, that, the sea that way than the sort of nice like seaside image. That's now gone. There's no more invaders coming from the sea. There's no more chaos. There's also no crying, pain, or death. As a friend of mine used to say, there's no hearses, no hospitals, and no hankies. Those are the things that were missing. In the new creation. One day there will be no more cancer. There'll be no more heart disease. There'll be no more funerals. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more wills and probate and all that goes along with it. No more cemeteries. No more invasive tests. No more psychiatrists. No more dentist appointments. I'm looking forward to that. One day there'll be no more death or suffering. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes by God himself. The pain and the hurt that we experience in this world will be over. And I find that an incredible thing to look forward to. And it means actually in this life it's okay if we feel that we have more than our fair share of problems now. Because one day it will be over. One day God himself will be with us, comforting us. And those things will be done with. There's also no more history. What I mean by that is there will be nothing more to be done by God. No extra creation, no subsequent fall, no going to the cross again, no bringing it all to an end again. All of that is finished. Because all things have finally been brought together under Christ, under the Lamb. The goal of history is now here. Christ is now all in all, Alpha and Omega. And will be for eternity. There are also no more evildoers. We're going to come back to that in point three. But this is the future. Put simply. God's people will dwell eternally with God on a new earth. Dwelling with him forever in a paradise. This is what he hears. A simple explanation. What does he see? In other words, what sort of picture does Revelation give us to help us understand this? Well, secondly, this is our longest point a garden city, bride, scene. God's people, the bride here, are pictured as a city and a garden. But really, it's two takes on the same reality. John is told that he's been taken to see the bride and he sees these two things. So, really, if you put them together, it's a bit like a garden city. So, really, in one sense, the closest we get to this on earth uh, is Welwyn Garden City, I suppose. But this, this one, much, much better than some community town in Hereford. We get seven details about uh, this city. Firstly, it comes down from heaven. Do you see that coming down from heaven? From God. In other words, this is not an earthly creation. It's not like that hymn goes, we will not build a new Jerusalem on England's green and pleasant land. Actually, the new Jerusalem is something that God does. He brings it down From heaven, God will do this. And God's people are there. There are twelve gates, twelve foundations, twelve jewels. Its width, length and height are twelve thousand stadia. Its walls are twelve times twelve cubits thick. Twelve all the way through the book of Revelation has been an indicator of God's people. And here it's made even more explicit. We're told that the gates have the 12 tribes written on them. The foundations have the 12 apostles written on them. God's people, Old and New Testament, are here. That's really what it's getting in, the idea of all those 12s. But it's not just God's people who are here, God himself is here. What we're given is this, this huge picture of a, God's people God's people dwelling with God's himself I and mean, it's seen by the dimensions of the place. I mean there are a lot, a lot of people there. Now I don't think we're supposed to take the dimensions dimensions literally. We get twelve thousand stadia by twelve thousand stadia by twelve thousand stadia. That's about one thousand four hundred miles by one thousand four hundred miles, by one thousand four hundred miles. What it means is that the city is a perfect cube. We'll come to that in a minute. But the point is more this a 1,000 is big. We saw that last week. 12 is God's people. Well, it's big and God's people are there. That's more the point of giving you these uh, huge dimensions. If it were literal dimensions, then the city would be about the size of Brazil, cubed. As though so you were to sort of put Brazil on its side. It would be bigger in capacity than the moon if you sort of made it into a, a, a cube shape. Someone online has me do a scale model of what it would look like if you actually put the dimensions on Earth. It's 1,400 miles high. Now, bear in mind, planes usually fly at 5 miles high, 30,000 feet. This is 28 times higher than that. Now, it could be literal. It could be that God will add more oxygen into the upper atmosphere. But I think it's more likely that it's a picture of this wonderful future reality Rather than a literal representation. It's showing us that this world will be huge and that God's people are there. But as I said, it's not just God's people who are there. God is there too. We're told that God and the Lamb are there. More than that, that they're its temple. In other words, we don't need a meeting place to meet with God in this new world because God is there with his people. In that sense, the whole place is a temple. And this is hammered home by the shape of the place. It's a perfect cube. The only uh, one place in the Bible that has a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies. The place in the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people. Where only the high priest could enter once a year. Well we get it here, but now we're living in it. We get to dwell with God. To be his people like never before, which is what he's already told us. In plain language, it's also glorious. It has God's glory and shines like a jewel. And this section is full of Old Testament allusions. Which again, if you've been with the series, you'll know that that's uh, a big thing in, in Isaiah and in, uh, in Revelation. In Isaiah, we're told And the nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah sixty eleven. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut. You may, uh, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations that their kings are led in procession. We get that same imagery here of the nations, all the peoples of the world coming into this place and bringing in all their treasure, all their wealth. It will be glorious. The streets are paved with gold. The foundations are put in jewels, 12 kinds of jewels, like the 12 jewels on the ephod of the high priest that he would wear when he went into The temple. Another reminder of his people, but also the temple. It has no sun because God's glory gives it light. And guess what? It's another allusion to the Old Testament, same chapter. Speaking of Jerusalem, Isaiah writes, the sun shall be no more your light day by day, uh, by day, nor your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. It's looking forward to a time when we won't even need the light of the sun, because we'll see God's glory. It's just incredible. It has nothing unclean or detestable in it, again parallel to the no-evil-doers in the city. It has no night there. Darkness, nighttime is when bad things happen. That's why in Star Wars the baddies are on the dark side. You sort of understand that, don't you? That's why Jesus is the light of the world, not the dark of the world. It's not so sort of interchangeable. Again, whether this is literal, it's hard to tell. I can't imagine a nighttime where you can't see any stars. I couldn't imagine that, but who knows? Vernon, uh, who we talked about, who's 70 today, pointed out to me that when we put it together with Genesis, uh, uh, you see that everything that was split apart in Genesis is brought together here in this chapter. Uh, on day one, day and night were separated. Well, now there is no night. It's just day brought back together. On day three, the land and the sea were separated. Well, now there is no sea. All is land. And on day two, heaven and earth were separated. Well, now heaven has come down to earth and heaven and earth are united. God has put everything back together that he split right at the beginning. This was always the plan. This was always where we were going. Hat tip Vernon. And the equation of how is certainly what is in mind, because the city then is pictured as a garden. Let me read to you those verses again in chapter 22, just the first line. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of light, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or sun, for Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. So the picture here is of a, a garden, and it's got a river flowing through uh, from the throne. This reminds us of Eden, where the four rivers flowed. But it also reminds us of the temple in Ezekiel, where a river flowed from the temple out to the land, and where there were trees on both sides of the river. So Ezekiel uh, 47, verse 12, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Except here, the, the picture is sort of even bigger. It's the tree of life that we're seeing in this garden, and its leaves are not just for healing, but for the healing of the nations, or probably, uh, or possibly, for the healing of the Gentiles. Gentiles and nations are the same words in the New Testament. Whatever this is, it's for the healing of the people. And there are 12 kinds of fruit. It yields its fruit 12 times a year, every month. Again, a reminder that it's for God's people. And the tree of life, which has not made an appearance in the Bible since Genesis 3, now returns and now provides sustenance and healing to the people. That's not the only thing, though, from Genesis 3 here. There's also no more curse in verse 3. Nothing will be accursed. The pronouncements of man and woman, the land, all undone. No more curse. No more futility. No more death. And God's names will be on our foreheads. Here's a reminder that it's picture language. It's not that we'll sort of have trendy Hebrew tattoos on our heads. It's that mark of belonging. Like the child writing their name on their their favourite keepsake. Mine, it says. This one is mine. No one can take him away from me. He's mine for all eternity. And it gets even better. In verse four, we'll see him face to face. How many times do you hear in the Bible something along the lines of, you cannot see my face and live. If you see my face, you You can only see my back. Well, here we will see his face and we will live. More than that, we will live with him forever. The barrier of sin will be gone and we'll actually be able to see him face to face. Imagine that. You can't imagine that, can you? All his glory and majesty and beauty and perfection, and we'll be able to gaze upon his face. And what will our response to all this be? Well, in verse 3, we will worship. We will spend eternity worshiping the Lamb, worshiping the Lord. We'll never cease to sing his praises for all that he has done. And do you notice that he remains the Lamb? He remains the one that was slain. We'll praise him for all eternity for the cross. But also we'll reign with him. We'll reign with Christ. Over what? Over everything. What that includes? I don't know. Adam was given rule over the animals. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6 we're told that we'll judge angels. Who knows? But we will reign with him. And it will be glorious. And it will last forever. So Christ is there. His people are there. And it will be glorious. And although everyone is invited, though, not everyone will be there, which is our last point, an invitation (coughs) and a portion (coughs) given. The last section of Revelation can feel a bit of a jumble, but really it's a recapping of what's gone on through the whole book, a bit like the introduction at the beginning anticipated all the stuff that was coming, the end sort of nicely goes back and gives you a, a, a rundown of everything that's gone. We're back with John now. And he's being assured that what he's seen and heard is true and is about to happen. Unlike Daniel, who's given a vision and told to seal it up because it's way up in the future, John is specifically told not to seal up his vision because it pertains to what's about to happen. And it's basically like, let everybody get on with what they're doing and show themselves for who they are in verse 11, because judgment is coming. What we need to do is wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Accept his offer of forgiveness before he returns in wrath. Drink from the water of life that Jesus offers us in verse 17. As he said while he was on earth, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The spirit and the bride bid you come and drink from the root of David, the bright morning star. Come to Jesus now before he returns, before it's too late. Accept his invitation. And one day you will be at that wedding, eat of the tree of life, and live forever. But throughout this passage we're reminded that not everybody will. Not everyone accepts the invitation to this wedding. There are those who are outside, those who are cast into the lake of fire. Back in verse 8 we were told that there would be no more murderers, no more sexually immoral, no more sorcerers, no more idolaters, no more liars. And there's a similar list in chapter 22. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There, outside, is a parallel to the lake of fire in the chapter before. Those are your two options. You can be in the city or you can be outside. You can be with God or in the lake of fire. And I'm so thankful at this point for what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. He writes a similar list, saying that those kind of people will not inherit the kingdom. But then he finishes with this. And such were some of you, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. So this wonderful new creation that we've been seeing is not populated by people who have never sinned. It's populated exclusively by forgiven sinners made perfect, and Jesus who shed his blood that they might be forgiven. That's who's there. Or, in other words, verse 27, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who may drink freely from the water of life. Those who have put their trust in Jesus for their forgiveness. Those whom God calls in verse 7 his sons. And it is sons there, it's not a gender thing. But it's an allusion back to God's promise to David that his offspring uh, would, he would be a father to his offspring, and he their son. Here it's sort of mashed up with the usual promise, but it's sort of putting us in the line of David as we reign. And therefore the challenge for us is, is not not to be on that list of, of all those awful things that it listed. The first half of the list is slightly different. The first half speaks of those who are not cowardly faithless, or detestable, or profane. That first bit of the list is probably more aimed at those who've been following Christ for a time and then turned away. Fearful, faithless, and in the end, desecrated. The challenge all the way through the book has been not to turn back. Not to turn against Jesus, or you will end up outside. And there's also in this last chapter a curse pronounced on anyone who adds or takes away from the words of the book. John understands what he's written is Holy Scripture. He understands that what he's writing is that important. It's not, oh, take it or leave it. It's not add your own slant to it. He's saying this is God's word. Now, I don't think John was writing this for the whole of scripture. This verse is specifically referring to the book of Revelation. But that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to the whole of scripture. When you have God's word, you're not free to add or take away from it, but as it's convenience. It's convenient. That, says John, will land you with the plagues and kicked out of the garden. Why? Because by doing that, by adding or taking away, really you're putting yourself above and over God. We're back in Eden again. The devil says, did God really say? And Eve says, yes, and don't touch it. The devil takes away and Eve adds. This is how it all went wrong in the first place. We can't pick and choose what God has said and hasn't said. A few verses here, a chapter there, in the name of relevance or moving with the times or culture. We forget actually that we're supposed to be countercultural. We forget that it's the norm in the Bible that we're hated. Read the rest of the book. Read the letters to the churches. It's not for moving with the times that they're no not moving with the times that they're condemned. It's moral and theological compromise with Jezebels and Balaam's if you read the letters. That's what risks us our place at the wedding. And Jesus tells us that this wedding is coming soon. We're to be ready for it. And the caution is not to be playing hard and fast with his word when he comes, not to be caught spiritually napping or going off track. I mean, even John needs correction here, doesn't he? He's reminded in verse 9 that what he needs to be doing is worshipping God, keeping the words of this book. If we do that along with John, we'll be blessed, it says in verse 7. Do you see that? And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the seventh and final blessing in his book. Keep this book. But what does it mean to do that? Well, it means to be ready. To be ready for the wedding. To RSVP before the wedding date. Repent and believe the gospel. I tried to make the RSVP and to repent something. It was too cheesy in the end. What we need to do is repent and believe. That's the important thing. We need to accept his invitation and turn to Christ. And if we have our SVPs, then we need to keep going until the wedding day. Keep looking forward to that wedding day. Jesus himself spoke of the danger of taking our eye off the ball or not having enough oil in our lamps when the bridegroom arrives. So we must keep close to Christ, sustained by his spirit, obedient to his word and longing for his coming. The book finishes like this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. The wedding is nearly here. Are you ready? Let's pray that God would make us ready for the wedding. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful future. That you have prepared for us, Father. Thank you for that wonderful wedding day, and Father, pray that you'd help us keep going. Father, pray that you'd help us keep ready for when Jesus returns. Father, help us not to be uh, napping or playing hard and fast with the rules or, or, or going astray, but Father, keep us close to you. And Father, we thank you for that eternity we'll spend with you. Father, pray that it would sustain us through hard times as we consider it and keep it in our minds.